Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, what's the reality surrounding the illegal pot shops in Hamilton? A leaked report finds that Canada is warming at twice the rate as the rest of the world. And calls are rising for William Barr to release the entire Mueller report. Also, analysts saying that the chances of a clean Brexit are unlikely and the exit is more likely to be chaotic. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to talk about the pot shops, especially in light of the fact that uh, the Premier made some comments about Hamilton yesterday. Uh, in speaking uh, yesterday, doing a little bit of a QA, and uh, he actually called out Hamilton for not doing enough when it comes to uh, illegal pot shops uh, on the same day that many shops were supposed to be open but failed to meet the deadline. Now, police have said that uh, there are only 12 illegal dispensaries. Uh, the Premier seems to think there are 50 or more going on here. So to try to get some clarity on that, we want to talk about this issue. And uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome uh, Deputy Chief of Police Dan Kinsella from Hamilton Police Service to the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for the time for jumping in here. Appreciate you jumping in talking to us today. No problem, Bill. Nice to uh, be talking to you. Listen, let me get uh, right to the bottom of this, then, if I could, Dan, about uh, how you are, as police services are dealing with this. I will get to the number in a second, but uh, there's a lot of concern right now that people are saying, how come you guys aren't shutting these things down? How, why are there even 12 of these things open right now? Well, the the fact of the matter is we have been shutting them down, and, and we've been uh, you know uh, going by the rule of the law and and we've been uh, working together with our provincial counterparts in a in a team approach to make sure that we do it properly to make sure that uh, what we do stands up uh, in front of the courts and then uh, we bring a good package to the courts and then they deliver uh, the appropriate sentence to def- deter uh, uh, participation in illegal dispensaries. Now, if you could, Dan, maybe clarify exactly what you mean by uh, the courts are going to do this. I mean, can you not, is it as simple a matter of just walking in and say, you don't have a license to do this, we're shutting you down and you're going to, to trial? Or is do you have to build up a case against these people? Yeah, we do. It's, it's much more complicated than that. If it was that easy, we would have them all shut down. But, uh, you know, it takes about uh, two days of uh, surveillance and gathering information to be able to write the information to obtain a search warrant. And then uh, following that, we have to assemble the search team to go in, deal with any people that we find inside, and obviously process the exhibits that we find inside. More often than not, um, there's many, many pounds of of, uh, product. Uh, There's money that has to be, uh, you know, counted and seized and appropriately um, uh, put into our, our property branch. And uh, then we have to do the follow-up work, processing the individuals that are found inside, laying the appropriate charges, bringing the charges before the courts. And and as you uh, probably know, since January, we have been uh, locking and barring um, uh, entry to the premises once we do uh, take them over. And that's to prevent them from going back the next day and reopening. So uh, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of uh, work that's involved from... Uh, our officers and our our provincial counterparts, and uh, I just want to commend the great job that uh, the men and women of the Hamilton Police and the uh, uh, the counterparts on the provincial team are doing to uh, bring an end to this. Uh, uh, problem that we have in Hamilton. You mentioned something that I had heard a- anecdotally as well, Dan, that sometimes you uh, will close these things down after you've done all the, the, the due process that you've just outlined here. Uh, and uh, in some cases, these things just open up a day or two later. Yeah, and that's what we found um, uh, certainly prior to legalization, but even post-legalization before uh, we were able to do the research and, and uh, effectively use the provisions of the Provincial Cannabis Act to uh, lock and bar them. And, and what it comes down to basically is uh, this is a, uh, you know, a cost-reward business that they're in, and if the courts are going to be delivering penalties uh, like peace bonds and, and small-dollar fines, um, it's just worth their while to keep going and keep uh, getting back into the business. The locking and barring of the premises has proven successful to prevent them from uh, opening up again the next day, uh, but some of that uh, is going to be before the court soon, and you know it's really going to depend on the decisions of the courts uh, which way this goes. How many uh, cases do you have pending right now? Do you, uh, do you have that off the top of your head, Dan? Uh, I don't uh, have it, but uh, we have uh, well over uh, 100 charges before the courts, and we have... Um, 18 uh, places locked down right now, and, uh, you know, we're just working our way through the system. The individuals that are there, we're beginning to uh, see some fines coming out of the court, so we're paying very close attention to that, and uh, we'll see uh, and hope for uh, fines and, and penalties that are a deterrent. 
Uh, Dan, listen, I know it's a busy day for you, and I really appreciate you jumping in. I could hear the sirens in the background, so obviously things are going to get a lot busier for you in the next little while. So thanks so much for jumping in and uh, clarifying this for us. Appreciate it. No problem. Nice to talk to you, Bill. Take, Take care. care. That's uh, Deputy Chief of Police Dan Kinsella from Hamilton Police Services. So listen, let, let's let's delve into this a little bit further. That's that that's the statistical area from from the police as to how they're dealing with this. I want to bring Jack Lloyd into the conversation. He's a lawyer representing uh, uh, patients access uh, for medical marijuana, cannabis lawyer, and activist. And uh, we've had Jack on the pro- program before uh, to try to get some clarity about how this is actually happening with the industry and and how the, the what the police are doing and what the provincial law and federal law is doing are having an impact on this. Jack, thank you for being with us today. Appreciate it. Oh, that's my pleasure, Bill. Thank you for having me. You, uh, you just heard uh, from uh, Deputy Chief Dan Kinsella about how Hamilton Police Services are handling this. Uh, there's a concern here and, and a bit of a conflict here about what police seem to think is, is an illegal shop and, and what the, some of the, the people that are operating these businesses right now seem to think is very legal and above board. Could you explain exactly what the, the conundrum seems to be here? Uh, Well, it's a problem of the government's own making, ultimately, and I I don't envy Hamilton police, certainly. They're just trying to do their jobs. But they have been put in a very difficult situation by the provincial government. This was very clearly indicated by the, uh, quite frankly, outrageous and disappointing comments by the Premier in regards to uh, the the dispensary situation in the city of Hamilton. So uh, at its core, the main issue is... uh, the ability for sick people to access their medicine. And there was a court ruling in August of 2017 in the city of Hamilton that urgent uh, enforcement priorities do not trump patient access rights. And so essentially what the the provincial government did was introduce a law to get around a court order that said that if you want to shut down a medical cannabis dispensary, you have to go to court um, and prove that the... uh, at that time, the access to cannabis for medical purposes regulation was constitutional. And so they never did that. Instead, they took the easy way out, which was to draft uh, the uh, Section 18 of the Cannabis Control Act 2017. The big problem uh, for Hamilton police, uh, and in fact, any police uh, uh, services in Ontario, is that the order explicitly states that Hamilton police services and um all other police services in the province of Ontario uh, are to enforce this order. So really the question that police need to be asking is whether the shops are medical and whether the shops are in compliance with the court order. So uh, it's not nice and it's difficult, but uh, certainly there are thousands of very sick people who rely on these shops to access their medicine. So hearing uh, Premier Ford make those disparaging comments was extraordinarily disappointing uh, for this community of people, and I anticipate that we'll be going to court to 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 seek a remedy. Yeah, but Jack, we've got to put this in perspective. We have to recall that this, uh, his chief of staff just a couple of weeks ago was the one that all called out police services right across the province to go in there and start busting these places and closing them down. Uh, well, certainly, in, I think that the, the closest... Uh, a uh, case I can think of would be one called Roncarelli and Duplessis, in which uh, the government is really, uh, by government I mean the legislative and executive branches of government, are really uh, overstepping their jurisdictional authority here. The courts made a ruling, and if they want to uh, uh, go against that ruling, then they need to come to court, right? They can't just uh, have police um, uh, become judge, jury, and executioner on this important issue. Uh, and at its core, sick people are suffering. And, and police don't want that either, right? Like, the police are not interested in infringing the, the, the charter-mandated rights of medical cannabis patients. But this, uh, the way that this law is being applied, that's what's happening. Yeah, because I've heard that, and we've talked with some of the operators. Uh, this is previous to, uh, to obviously yesterday when the shops uh, all of a sudden became legal. And we'll get into that in just a couple of seconds. Uh, and and they've told us that when police do uh, uh, attend these scenes, they're they're almost apologetic, like sorry, we have to do this. It's it's you know it's it's our job, but we think it's kind of, it's kind of a frivolous and waste of time. But so it doesn't seem as if anybody really has a grip as to what has to happen here or how to handle this situation, which begs the question: Were we even ready? for the the legalization and for the opening of these shops and is it being done in in a pragmatic fashion well i think that prior to uh october 17 2018 hamilton and hamilton police services were doing a very good job at regulating the cannabis dispensaries on their own they had no need of provincial or federal uh, uh 
uh, interaction on that front. Uh, the shops were safe, and the shops were providing reasonable access to medical cannabis to the approved patients. And so really the answer to all of these questions lies in Justice Lopchick's order. It was issued in 2017, which is that if the shop is providing only medical cannabis to approved patients, you leave it alone. And uh, even uh, comments that, that the shops are dangerous, the shops are a, a public safety hazard and things of this nature, all of that is cured uh, if the police are able to enforce the criminal law with, uh, in, a, in a, an appropriate manner without arresting everyone for cannabis, which, of course, is now legal. So it's a very complex situation. Um, but at its core, uh, I think that the other issue that I just want to express is that police really should not be making demands of the courts that they need to um, rule in certain ways. It's going to result in a, uh, serious problems in how the law is enforced. Is, is, is part of the, the rationale or the reason for some of the concern and maybe even some of the confusion at this stage, uh, the, the protocol that the province has developed here, but the fact that, for instance, to use this stuff uh, until yesterday, of course, uh, it, it basically it was a mail order situation. Uh, and, and, and now we're, the, they've, they've already told us that there's a shortage, that there's a supply shortage that's going on right now. Yesterday, these stores were supposed to open, and uh, many of them, of course, didn't. Now they're beginning, uh, uh, they're, I guess, right now under the guise of some severe fines for not being ready to be open at the same time. But I, I just, I'm getting the sense here that the, the government here doesn't really have their act together, and, and the shop owners, and certainly the patrons who want to see these shops open, are the ones that are getting the short end of the stick. Well, certainly the recreational consumers are struggling, but the, the real victims here are the medical cannabis patients who uh, their access has been uh, effectively frustrated completely by this entire situation. What I will say on that front is that the city of Hamilton, in my view, would be entirely justified to issue business licensing for medical cannabis dispensaries. They could advise police to leave those with licenses alone. And so that would solve all of these problems. So I think that government created this problem and uh, the, the, the city of Hamilton really could solve it if they, if they wish to take that action. So you feel that, that there is an element here that city council could actually partake in to try to find a solution to this? They could solve it with uh, issuing business licenses. That would solve it entirely. And why isn't that happening? Uh, again, it's unclear. Other municipalities have done so, and they, ha they did it with the support of the federal government, so long as it was medical cannabis only. And so uh, it's, it's getting frustrating for patients to continually go to court and fight for their rights. Uh, the, the government needs to respect those. And in my view, um, really issuing business licenses in order to ensure that reasonable access continues in the city of Hamilton is a priority, especially given the court order. Jack, you're getting the sense that there is a feeling in some levels of government and maybe within some elected officials, that uh, they, their attitude is, uh, well, okay, this may be legal, but we don't like it, and we're going to make it as difficult as we can. Well, I think that there's a lot of stigma. We had 90 years of prohibition in this country, and, and medical cannabis patients had to fight tooth and nail in order to get the access that they currently have. The problem is, is that a, a lot of the products that are destined for the medical market are ending up in the recreational stream. And so, uh, again, patients uh, suffer front. And so what they're asking for now, and what I think that it, there's a mandate either on the courts or uh, local government is to make a decision that resolves this conflict, because consistently saying that we they can arrest their way out of this problem isn't going to work. I just heard uh, uh, Dan Kinsella say that there's over 100 charges before the courts. Um, thanks, right? Courts are now going to, every courtroom in, in the city of Hamilton is going to be filled with these cases now. That's not a solution, right? Well, and and there is that's that's part of the concern as well. I mean, when these things finally do come before a, a judge, uh, you know, the, you've got a situation where technically they're legal now. So why were the charges not dropped? That's a question I think an awful lot of defense lawyers are going to be asking when they finally step in front of a, a, a judge and, and say, "Look, at, we have to deal with this." And I and I can see, I understand what what uh, Deputy Chief Kinsella was saying here, but you know you got to come down hard on these people. I'm not so sure that that, that there's a, a willingness to even do that for for the people that are being charged. I think it would be wrong-hearted, and I think it would be wrong in law. So I, I I highly doubt that that's going to be the route things take, and I think that it, you know it doesn't behoove police to be demanding that of the courts, right? In fact, I think that Hamilton police should be very cautious because there's a court order that says that they're supposed to be enforcing 
medical-only rules rather than the, the, the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act in this situation. So it, you- it's a complex situation. And again, uh, I think that uh, all government actors are doing their best, but the baby is being thrown out with the bathwater here and medical cannabis patients are suffering. Well, and uh, I guess uh, just to wrap this up, it'd be awfully nice if uh, the Hermia did a little research before he started uh, flapping off of what's, uh, what's going on here when it comes to the numbers as well. Uh, Jack, oh, well, I, well I, I think that that's the, the most disappointing aspect of this, is Premier Ford has, uh, has essentially called out the city of Hamilton in a way that's completely unfair. The city of Hamilton had probably the best, safest, and uh, uh, most reliable uh, cannabis in the entire country, and now he's uh, he's saying that that's uh, inappropriate and awful in some manner. Um, medical cannabis patients certainly don't agree with that, and now they're suffering the consequences of Ford's bizarre position on this. So it's ex- extremely unfair to the city of Hamilton. It is. That. It is. Jack, thanks so much for pressed for time. I really appreciate you jumping in today. Thank you. Jack Lloyd, of course, a lawyer representing a number of the people that are running these businesses right now. Uh, everybody loses here. The police are in a tough situation. The, the courts are going to have to deal with all of this stuff. And uh, the patients, including, as Jack just mentioned, the medical marijuana patients are the ones that seem to be uh, most affected by this because they can't get the product they need for the uh, the pain relief and, and for whatever other medical reasons that they need the product for. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a story that uh, should be front and center in Ottawa right now, and it should be front and center in just about every government office across the country. Uh, it's a study that was done for Environment Canada uh, that indicates that uh, with what has been happening right now, uh, vis-a-vis global warming uh, and climate change. I know some people still shake their heads and say, oh, come on, that's not really going on. What are you talking about, Kelly? Yeah, it is. Uh, Canada is, on average, experiencing warming at twice the rate of the rest of the world, with northern Canada heating up almost three times the global average. This is according to this new government report that was leaked. Uh, I guess it's going to officially be announced and and produced uh, later on today. But uh, we've got a lot of the facts already, and they're very troubling. Join us to talk about this is uh, Dale Marshall, uh, National Climate Change Manager with Environment Defense, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Dale, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, thanks. Good to be here. Uh, the numbers here are, are frightening. Uh, I, I think if for nothing else, this is a clarion call that, look, at, we've got to have this discussion about climate change and how this is having an impact on us. Uh, uh, we've got deniers out there. We've got people that say we don't have to move very quickly on this. Let's go slowly on this. Uh, this report seems to indicate that we're not going fast enough. Uh, absolutely. Um, it, it kind of validates a lot of the science that has come recently, including international science, but this one focused on Canada really does make it clear that Canada is not going to be isolated from this problem. We're already feeling the effects. Um, the most important finding, though, I think from this report is that we have the chance to act. You know, we can act decisively and tackle climate change right now, or we can sit on our hands and the kinds of disasters we've seen over the last few years, whether it's wildfires or floods in a whole bunch of places. Uh, you know, I live in Ottawa. There have been some flooding along the Ottawa River the last two springs that have been really devastating. Um, you know, those kinds of impacts are, are going to get worse. That's what the science says. But we can decide whether they're, they're going to get a bit worse or they're going to get really, really, really bad. Is, is this going to bring this back to the front page where people are going to talk about this again, Dale? Because, I mean, as you mentioned, there are deniers. I mean, even, you know, the guy in the White House, and I don't want to t- talk too much about them, but, I mean, they were, they were asking him about this the other day, and he said the wildfires, the flooding that was going on in the United States and the Midwest right now, so this has nothing at all to do with climate change. It's just These are just, you know, natural phenomena. Uh, and there are people out there that believe that sort of thing. I mean, what's it going to take for them to actually understand that, that one follows another? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we can preoccupy ourselves too much with those who just basically are, have shut their eyes to what the science is saying. I mean, these, you know, these are the world's best scientists on climate change saying not only is this happening, but it's human, um, it's human created, and it's going to be really bad. <laughs> so I, I think we need to look at, because uh, the vast majority of Canadians, just like the vast majority of Americans, believe in, in the science of climate change and think we need, should be doing something about it. I think where, there's, where it's lacking is a sense of urgency. And, you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change last fall said that essentially we have 11 years to turn this around. Um, and so we really need to act a lot more, with a lot more urgency than we have been in terms of 
reducing our emissions. And we have the solutions. This is the crazy thing is that, you know, the, the technological solutions are there. We know what works from a policy perspective because government measures in other parts of the world have been effective. Well, and I know I saw on social media one person that was criticizing this and saying, oh, isn't it coincidental that this came out just after the government, uh, the federal government, it starts to impose their carbon tax program? And mm. I said, that's exactly why it's important that we talk about this. They didn't just conjure this report up yesterday to try to validate a, p- a policy piece. This has been going on for quite some time right now, and we just don't seem to be paying as much attention as we should to it. Yeah, I mean, this this report took years to, to complete. And, you know, and there are going to be follow-up reports. They're going to point, for example, to the health um, implications of climate change, what we've been feeling already. And we know that things like Lyme disease are getting worse in many parts of Canada. Um, we know that there's some real mental health issues around the, the disasters that have been happening. Um, you know, obviously, air quality is affected when we continue to, to rely on fossil fuels. And so the health of Canadians is is being affected right now and is, again, going to get potentially a lot worse unless we uh, act with urgency. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really hopeful that this is one of the studies, because it's focused on Canada, that really makes um, Canadians realize that, that you know, the, the, the modest steps we've been taking so far really have to change in a real way. Are, are we educating ourselves to the extent that we should about this, Dale, to understand exactly what's happening and the implications? I mean, I, I honestly think that most Canadians now think that, that we need to act with more urgency on this issue. I mean, we, we track um, public opinion polls on this issue. And I don't know what it was. Maybe it's the last two summers of, you know, more wildfires and tornadoes and and. Um, a whole bunch of natural disasters that have opened people's eyes or the, the, the science coming out. But uh, um, what we've seen in this in the new year since since 2019 began is that um, people are talking about needing to do things now and needing to really make huge changes in the next five to 10 years. And that's what's seen as long term. Five to 10 years is no longer you know, right around the horizon, it's seen as like that's the up, the outer limit of what where people want to see things having changed completely. And again, we have the one the one thing in Canada that has not we haven't grappled with yet is our oil and gas sector. Um, we it's still the largest source of emissions in Canada. It's it's carbon emissions are growing, continue to grow, and the projections very recent government projections show that that sector is going to continue to increase its carbon emissions, even with all the policies that are in Canada's climate plan. And and that just can't be. You cannot have entire industries let off the hook on this. The science is too dire for us to, to not have every single person and every single industry and every single province be acting decisively. Well, and that's one of the findings of the report, and, and I know that may be uncomfortable to an awful lot of people, but uh, they say that, look, at you know, it's the emissions that are causing an awful lot of the problems right now, and it's humans that are doing it, uh, which which is running contrary to what some ele- elected officials do. But haven't you found, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, Dale, that politicians are invariably are the last ones to come to the party when it comes to, to believing in this stuff and acting on this stuff, uh, because they play to small little constituencies that may have a different opinion, and this is all about them getting reelected as opposed to doing what needs to be done in a circumstance like this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, the situation when it comes to politics is that it's true. Parties and politicians want to be reelected almost almost more than anything else. And so we need people to be demanding that that they put into their uh, into their their measures um, things that will actually address really um, huge problems. And I would love to think that politicians would just show leadership and just say, look, maybe, you know, maybe the public isn't entirely there yet, um, but we're going to act on this because it's incredibly important. That rarely happens. Um, but we're at a point now, as I said, where Canadians are are demanding that kind of change and and uh, in in a real concrete and urgent way. And I I think the next election that's coming up, the federal election that's coming up in the fall, is going to be really interesting to see how parties react to the science and to 
um, the the shifts that have happened in uh, in in Canadians' perception of this problem. Well, because we've seen that, and I certainly I'm getting feedback from our listeners as we talk about this on the program uh, on a pretty regular basis now, because these kinds of reports seem to be coming out on a regular basis. But mm. but I think I think we've we've moved on from this idea that some people used to have that uh, that uh, you know, climate change or warming temperatures, such as we're talking about this in report, just means oh it's going to get a little hotter in the summer and maybe milder in the winter. That that warming the global warming actually means severe temperatures, uh, very hot and very cold in the, in the winter and summer, and 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 it's causing these 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 climate phenomenons, like as you say, much more you know storms. We're getting wildfires. We're getting uh, what we used to call hundred year rains. We're getting about four or five of those every summer now mm-hmm. as as a regular basis. I think it's starting to finally click into people now that hey, there's something going on here. Yeah, I mean that's the you know the temperature studies that we've seen in terms of, you know, two to three times the warming in Canada versus what's happening globally. I mean, temperature and sea ice, that all, that all can seem kind of distant. But what we have to realize is that, like, there are, there are things that are affecting the, the well-being of Canadians, right? When, when, you know, 70 people died in Montreal last summer because of a heat wave. Um, you know, you're getting extreme weather events. We're getting wildfires. Things are, it is impacting the, the health and well-being of Canadians right now. And it could potentially get a lot worse. And, and so, um, you know, the, the, I, I, you know, the, the, so looking at the science in terms of some of these, um, some of these changes and, and projected changes, um, can be, you know, can, can feel distant for some people. Um, but increasingly, because of because of those changes, people are realizing this is this is happening. We need to do something about it. Well, one of the other arguments that we've always heard, and I'm sure you've heard it a hundred times more than I have, is that uh, it, look, at, we have to make a choice here. Is it going to be these environmental concerns that these reports talk about, or is it going to be a strong economy? And and they mm-hmm. seem to think it's got has to be either or. But as, as you know through your research. Uh, other jurisdictions of the world have also tackled this problem, and it doesn't have to be the economy or the environment. It should be both, and it can I, be. Yeah, I mean that has always been a false choice. <laughs> like, I mean we're we're going to, regardless of what energy we use, we're going to produce energy and we're going to consume energy, and that's going to that's going to uh, um, uh, drive our economy. The question is, do we want to use energy that is fundamentally changing the dynamics of the planet or, or can we use energy that has, that has a much lower impact? Um, you know, just so you talk about things around the world, we don't have to look even around the world right now. There's a huge debate going on. As you know, the, the carbon tax came into to effect nationwide yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, BC put into place a carbon tax over a decade ago and their fuel usage went down. So their greenhouse gas emissions, especially from vehicle use, went down over that time. And they exceeded the national average in terms of GDP growth. The, the, the jurisdictions that actually had carbon pricing in place in 2017, and that included Ontario until the, the government took it away last year, the four provinces, BC, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec, led the country in economic growth they were the four the four provinces that actually had a carbon a, some kind of price on carbon, either a carbon tax or a cap and trade system. So, so it is a false choice to say that we need to either address it, the environment and protect the environment, or have a strong economy. That's always been a false choice. But but how do we motivate politicians to to make this a, a, an issue? I mean, as you mentioned, we're going to the polls in October here in this country. Uh, we've, we've watched a little bit of uh, some of the political stuff going on. Their, their election's still a year and a half away, but uh, obviously a lot of the Democratic people that are running for the nomination seem to be pushing climate. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's about time, I guess, that maybe the elected officials are starting to get that message and think, hey, this is kind of important to the people that I want to vote for me. Yeah, I mean... It's unfortunate, and Canada and the U.S. are kind of two of the very, uh, they're outliers in terms of this being a partisan issue. Other parts of the world, you don't have conservatives railing against climate policies and, um, you know, and liberals or left-leaning politicians advocating for for action. Um, This is a North American phenomenon, and it really is unfortunate because it becomes a partisan issue instead of, Every country being on, you know, every party and every politician thinking we need to do something about this um, and, and not sort of cynically running against 
um, against action on climate change. Quebec, by the way, is very interesting in that that dynamic is the same as you see in Europe and other places in the world where from left to right on this political spectrum, political parties know that they need to, to be taking action on climate change. And that it, it, it is not a wedge issue there, just as it isn't in most part of the parts of the world. But that's the problem. I mean, they have made it a partisan issue. And I mean, it's, it's not coincidental, I guess, that, for instance, the premiers and the provinces that are challenging the, the federal government's policy now are all conservatives, uh, mm-hmm. small C and large C conservatives. Yeah. Uh, and, and it doesn't need to be that way. As I pointed out on my blog earlier today, uh, Dale, uh, when back in the 1970s and 80s, when all of a sudden we started to tune into what was going on with the environment, and acid rain was was considered to be the biggest threat at that time, it was two conservative leaders. It was Brian Mulroney and mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan that signed an accord to try to battle this, and that and took strong measures to do that. It, so that does not have to be a left versus right issue. They didn't think it was. No, and 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 the, you know the fundamental nature of being a conservative is you want to conserve things, and so it 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 is a natural place for conservatives to land, which is to, to, to be in favor of environmental protection. Richard Nixon, back in the 70s, passed all, you know, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, a whole bunch of environmental legislation in the early 70s. Um, you know, this, for some reason, climate change and global warming has become, um, again, it's, it's, it's quite um, um, distinct in North America, where it has become a polarizing issue between the political left and the political right. And I don't entirely understand why it is. And the mechanisms that are being put forward now, cap and trade systems and carbon taxes, those are market-based instruments that conservatives are the ones who brought those forward in, instead of going towards command and control regulations. So, to, so I find it ironic and baffling that now um, conservative uh, politicians are railing against this issue of a carbon tax where... You know, you have a pretty right, right-wing government in B.C. I know they're liberals, but they're pretty right-wing, who said, we're going to increase taxes on, on carbon emissions, but we're going to reduce taxes on personal income, on, on, on uh, uh, business income taxes. Um, and lo and behold, they, they, they started to address the problem of climate change and also had a healthy economy. Well, by the way, we, and we've talked about that on the program before, uh, that moniker of liberal, I'll put that in quotation, my, those are my air quotes here, uh, the, the Liberal Party in British Columbia is really a conservative party. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, because they've got yeah. a, there is a left-leaning party there, uh, two of them actually, same yeah. as it is in Quebec. I mean, the Liberals there are really the conservative party of that, uh, much a small-c conservative by name, if, if nothing else. Uh, and exactly. it, you're right, it was Christy Clark that brought this in, and, and subsequent, uh, and we've had previous governments that started doing this, and mm-hmm. it's working. Uh, it, it were, I, I think this is a, maybe a concern here that maybe we're a little too smug here in Canada and probably in the United States because we'll look at other jurisdictions, third world countries, and say, well, they're the polluters. It's not mm-hmm. us. We're doing what we can. This report says, no, we're not. Yeah, I mean, it's we're, we are a top 10 global polluter on an absolute basis, right? I mean, this is people keep saying, oh, we're just a small part of the problem. We're eighth in the world in terms of our carbon emissions. And, it, on a per, and that's from a small country. From a per, on a per-person basis, we are the worst in the G20. We, we, each Canadian produces more carbon emissions on average than citizens in, in other G20 countries. Uh, and now I think only part of that is actually, and a small part of that is actually people. Like a big part of our inventory has to do with, uh, when I say inventory, our greenhouse gas emissions come from industries that export products. So it has very little to do with anything that Canadians can actually control, and it's individual Canadians, other than voting for for parties who are willing to look at the problem in the face and say, we're going to do something about this. We have to have every single sector and every industry take responsibility for its carbon emissions and reduce them dramatically over the next 10 years if we're going to tackle this issue. Well, exactly. And for those that say, oh, come on, this isn't having any impact on me. Yeah, it is. It is. And look at how many people walking around the streets these days with respiratory problems uh, and a number Mm -hmm. of other things. It's a health issue, too. This is not just everybody that wants to define this as environmental or economic. Those are factors, but there's so much else going on here, too. Well, there's, there were a number of health associations, the Canadian Medical Association, the Canadian Nurses Association, um, public health associations in Canada. They all came out, in, this was beginning of February, two months ago, saying we need to act more urgently on climate change because this is a health issue. 
this is an issue that affects Canadian families um, in terms of uh, in terms of the health of their children uh, and the health of the family. And and that is what's becoming increasingly clear that climate change um, impacts are not just some far off in a distance thing time wise or in terms of geography. It is affecting Canadians now in terms of the things that we matter we care about the most, which is the health of our children. Like I worry about my two kids because I mean, not only are they potentially affect, uh, affected by impacts of of, uh, of climate change, but they're going to be inheriting a world where they're going to have to do, they're going to have to clean up our mess. Um, and I, so I would prefer that we clean up our mess as much as possible, so that their burden isn't just put on my children and my grandchildren. Well, here's hoping this uh, report acts as a catalyst for that. Uh, Dale, thank you so much for the time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Take care, Dale Marshall, of course, uh, who is the uh, National Climate Program Manager for environmental defense. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Go ahead and leave, they said. It'll be a huge economic uplift if you do that. And it'll be easy peasy to get out of the uh, European Union. That that was that was the, the mantra from the, the Brexit people, of course, when they had the referendum almost three years ago in the UK. And, well, they won the referendum. Uh, it has not been easy. And it uh, is, well, turning into an economic farce, really. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Elliot Tepper, of course, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at uh, Carleton University. Elliot, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Bill. you got to be doing better than Prime Minister May these days, anyway. Well, you have to give her a Nobel Prize for tenacity and, and courage of sorts. Yeah, <laughs> except that what's that old definition of insanity, trying to do the same thing and expecting a different result? How many kicks at the can has she had at this Three now? now, and yeah. they're talking about bringing back uh, the same thing forth. Well, it can't be identical because the Speaker won't let it, but... Um, there's only one deal on the table, and that's hers, and she's threatening, uh, promising. She's yet maybe brought back a fourth time uh, in the very near future. Where Where is this going? Because obviously the, the sand's running out of the hourglass here, if I could use an old-fashioned yep. analogy. Uh, are they going to ask for another extension? Well, there's there's a variety of possibilities, but it's very hard to see how any of them are going to do anything to resolve the situation. They crash out with no deal is by far the most likely possibility. What we have now is Parliament, as you know, humiliated the Prime Minister by saying, we don't, we don't have any faith in you to manage this process, so we're taking it out of your hands. And they've had what they call these indicative votes, and they had uh, quite a number, eight of them, and then they said, oh, well, now we'll, we'll bring those back on Monday with uh, three or four, and none of those passed. So they're going to try again on Wednesday, and that possibly will lead to something, but unlikely, in which case she may bring her plan back on Friday. But the clock is is ticking. They have only until the 12th of April to go back over. This is the mutual agreement on both sides to go back to uh, the UK, uh, EU, and say, okay, we now do have a plan, so give us an extension until the 22nd of May to carry it out. These dates are there for one specific reason. There's going to be elections to the European Parliament, and if the UK is still inside the EU, then they have till the 13th of April <laughs> to say, okay, here are our candidates, and here's how, here's how we're going to run the process, and then the election at the end of May. But this is well over a 1,000 days after the British public voted to get out of the EU. Now they would have to stay in, and therefore for a much longer period, says the EU, if you send the members of parliament, then that's we'll give you a year. We'll give you more than a year if you need it. Uh, meanwhile, you stay in and you're just a regular member. And, of course, that's anathema to a wide cross-section of people who really want to leave. What are the Yeah, let's talk about the political implications of this, if we could, Elliot. I mean, obviously, uh, Theresa May has been kicked around by her own party, not just by the parliament itself. Of course, she survived a, a non-confidence motion from her own party just before Christmas. Right. Uh, now, they can't touch her, but there's a, a lot of pressure for her to resign now. Right. And, uh, so she's, she's there until, you know, next December, and uh, they can't have a no-confidence vote. But everybody says, you know, Parliament has said many times in one way or another, and her own party also has said one way or another, we don't have confidence in you. But it's fascinating. Look at the politics here. We are in this situation in part because it looked like the uh, the prime minister of the day, David Cameron, couldn't control his own caucus. He said, I'll get cued. I'll call this referendum, and that will back me. Uh, I'll have so much more control over my own split caucus and there's all these people inside. It really, in the press at the time, 
they were talking about these are Pratt boys fighting over power. And, uh, and unfortunately, everybody lost. That is, everybody who thought this was going to resolve it, unite the party, keep uh, the U.K. in, you know, the EU project would just carry on. All of that has, was torn asunder. And, and as a result, well, I don't want to necessarily say it's political chaos, but there's certainly an awful lot of unrest. Uh, this this is one of these situations where no matter how they resolve this, and I guess at some point they're going to have to resolve it, uh, half the country is going to be unhappy about it. Yes, the uh, the two proposals, these indicative votes that came the closest was, uh, why don't we keep some kind of an economic union uh, with the EU? And that came within a few votes of passing. And then the most votes came with, no matter what we agree here, can we take it back to the people? Let's have a people's vote. That they both lost, and they may try to bring back some variation. No, there's there's clearly no consensus. I've been suggesting to you that really there's there's they're hunting for Goldilocks here. They want something that's just right. A Brexit that's not too hard or too soft or no Brexit at all. Over six million people signed a petition very very quickly, uh, the largest by far in in the UK's history saying we want to cancel we want to cancel article 50 and stay in so uh, but then the response comes hey 17.4 million people voted to get out so you can't so this goes on and on quite clearly there's zero consensus nothing that will apparently reach a uh, a mandate of parliament to face the EU and they they are saying they've said all along we don't want you to leave but if you're going to go, let's do it in an orderly fashion. This is not, and then you and I have talked about this, Bill, this is not Theresa May's deal. This is an arrangement, mm-hmm. a deal negotiated by 27 states in the EU and with Brussels, the, the bureaucracy, and the U.K. after the vote, which said, we want out, and she said, okay, I'll go negotiate it. And here it is, I've come back, and what they're saying now is, uh, on the EU side is, well, whatever happens, you can come back with all kinds of things. We are not reopening that negotiation. So that doesn't give her much wiggle room at all, does it? Well, it doesn't give anybody wiggle room. The The most likely outcome of this is a crash-out. That is, there will be, even though the U.K. Parliament said, we are voting against leaving with no deal. Do you want to vote for leaving with no deal? So everybody said, no, we don't want to do that. But the de facto uh, reality is, there's only one deal on the table. It's been voted down three times and probably a fourth. Uh, right now, there's an emergency uh, session of her own parliament or of her own uh, cabinet saying, okay, there's two parts to this. Let's talk about the political cabinet. One of the options is we'll just go for an election. But a word is leaked out from that saying there's internal polling by the conservative party saying they'd be annihilated if they do go for another snap election. So we are in a situation, and the economic side of this is is coming out. Goldman Sachs has just said it's costing over a billion dollars Canadian per week to have this uncertainty, and all kinds of businesses are moving out or hedging their bets or not investing, and 2.4% is off the GDP, according to Goldman Sachs, because of the uncertainty. Any hint that they might stay in always boosts the stock market and the value of the pound. So there is no clear exit strategy on this, and the most likely uh, outcome is a crash out. Well, yeah, because I know there was some talk a few months ago, but uh, actually a couple of days ago, too, after the last vote, to build away, maybe we need a second referendum. But I was listening to a, uh, one of the commentators on BBC over the weekend that was saying, look, if they do that, if they get on that road, what if, what if it, they say stay? So you had one that says go, one that says stay. says, do we make it the best two out of three? I mean, the, the, I mean the, the, at some point, the Parliament's going to have to make this decision instead of going back to referendum. Well, the, in Canadian parlance, that would be a neverendum. Yeah. <laughs> We've had this. And that was one of the my criticisms at the time, my comment at the time, was if you're going to do this, have, a, have this referendum, you need a Clarity Act. That's what we did here after we had some serious problems over the way we were handling our situation. So we said uh, in legislation you have to have a clear question and a clear majority. That is 50% plus one is not enough on a major constitutional uh, issue of this nature. And they did not do that. So that's their situation. I've been looking for green shoots. That is, they're looking for Goldilocks. I'm looking for, are there any signs here of something positive coming out? Uh, one of the 
one of the things that doesn't get talked about any longer because the day-to-day politics so obscures this was the nature of that referendum, which had three components on the leave side. One was all of those claims by those who were leaving, as you pointed out just now, oh, we're going to be, it's just going to be great. We'll be free. We can, we're free of the yoke of Brussels, and we can make all the free trade deals, and our health service is going to be, is going to be paid for now in a way that it never was. We'll save all that money. And it was all, it bordered on the mendacity, and then along with that came xenophobia and a lot of Islamophobia. It's all those immigrants, and there, there was a lot of, a lot of um, fear-mongering as part of that campaign. And then the other part of it was there was external interference. We know, apparently, the Russians were uh, not just testing out what they did, later did in the U.S. They've been testing it out on the continent. But uh, there's also the Cambridge Analytica component. Yep. Uh, so there was, but underneath all of that was a rise of populism. And this was a genuine issue that has not been addressed, and that is a lot of people are saying across Europe and America, this globalization stuff, this no borders and the benefits of economics, uh, and remember there's been enormous economic prosperity, a lot of stability in the econ- global economy, but it isn't working for us. And that populism component, which has wreaked havoc in country after country across Europe, I've been looking for green shoots to see on two sides. Is the reason for it being addressed? I don't see much of that, although Davos and the G7 and the G20 all say we need inclusive growth. So that's a mantra. But inequality is certainly part of this. But the other part of that is it does lead to to just out-and-out xenophobia. Borders are back. We We hate others. We have to have razor wire at our borders. There are some green shoots. Not only this petition in the U.K., which immediately said, why don't we cancel um, getting out of it? But right now, Slovakia just elected an overtly anti-populist leader, a woman at that, with a very high percentage of the vote, and she's saying we don't like... Has the populist wave started to to reach its peak and recede? And if that happens, it has to happen by actually meeting some of those goals of a more inclusive growth less inequality so that you can't have pandering to white identity politics and ethnicity you have to get you have to reduce that and there are some signs that the cresting of the populist wave may have happened and it might be receding and as i say i'm looking for green shoots to see that the underlying causes of all this may be maybe being addressed. Well, that would be welcome if it happened, because in, in my mind anyway, I think one of the byproducts of this populist movement, and it is, you're right, it is international, it's, it was the dumbing down of the political process. In other words, just tell the people what they want to hear, and you'll get elected. It doesn't have to be. And, and that happened with the Brexit situation. I mean, Nigel Farage, who was the driving okay. force for Brexit, I mean, he was on the British, uh, the BBC morning show the day after the referendum, and he told Piers Morgan, he says, yes, I made those numbers up. I mean, yeah. he admitted that freely to the nation, yeah. and, and, and you know, everybody watching that show much just thought, we, we, we just got duped, and, and that's how easy it is. Yes, and he's, he's good enough to uh, have admitted it, but he just once. <laughs> yeah. He's back in power, by the way. He, he said, yeah. I'm leaving politics, but he's back, and he's going to be leading these forces. Steve Bannon has been barnstorming across Europe, in effect, uh, for trying to make a coalition of, of nationalist and ethnic uh, voting blocks, or, or, and also, by the way, roiling up concern about this obscure UN <laughs> convention on refugees, which was meant to have a global response to a global problem. And, you know, you know, even have echoes of that in Canada. So um, this is a titanic struggle in all kinds of ways. This, this nature of the global economy is well worth an argument and well worth addressing the nature of the future of the European project is the most affected immediate result of this. Uh, we've elected a, a situ- we've got a situation you and I have been discussing in terms of the UK pulling out, and the European project is, even with them, you know, they were always kind of reluctant members of the European project. Mm-hmm. They were foot draggers. They were, but they were part of a $500 million trading bloc, which was also a geopolitical bloc, and it's being weakened. 
with the withdrawal of the UK, which one way or another, and now inside Macron has weakened, and, and Merkel is severe. She's going, going, gone. So this, the only winners of this are the anti-democratic forces in the world. That is, uh, Russia and China are the big winners of everything you and I have been talking about, about Brexit and the implication of the rise of populism. Exactly, which talks about Russian involvement. And we certainly know, as you mentioned, that they were involved in the Brexit thing. We know that they were involved in the U.S. election, although the guy in the White House doesn't seem to want to admit to that. i got a couple of minutes left. Let me switch over to that, if I could, for just a second, since we're talking about populism. Uh, the the latest, I, I, we can talk about the Mueller slash Barr report at some other time, but the, the latest from the president now is the threat to close down the Mexican yeah. border, totally. Uh, and I guess this is going to play to his base, Elliot. I mean, I'm sure the people, the, the red hats are thinking, yeah, that's that's being tough with those people. Uh, talk to me about the economic impact. I mean, I read a report last night that suggested that the auto industry in North America would shut down within a week if he did that. Well, let's bring it home. What about NAFTA too? Yeah. <laughs> so, which which is this is an integrated automobile market across the three countries. The economic implications uh, domestically for the farmers. One of the reasons we have a an immigration problem in America, they're all caught up with this, is America can't be honest about its labor market situation. They just continually ignore the fact that the supply and demand isn't working, and therefore you've got illegal migration as a response to it. And this action now by the president is just a way to solidify his base. It's, it's you know, they're holding very solid. The Mueller is irrelevant to the base on, on both parties, actually since you talked about that, but the economic implications are enormous. The, the uh, Mexican new president, who was a fire-breathing you know, populist of his own type, was actually working very well, apparently, with the U.S. administration, and even with us as well, in order to get NAFTA two going, and he's been. But all of this is going to just turn Mexico even more against America and sweep an anti-American wave perhaps all across Latin America, We've got Venezuela mixed into that in a different way. So it's the situation of America saying we don't want to be the leader in terms of holding the EU together. Let's have more beautiful Brexits. We don't want to be a leader uh, of the global economy, the liberal international order, those a rules-based order that Canada requires for our own prosperity. America doesn't want to lead on that and is taking actions such as this one we're talking about to further abdicate its role, that creates a vacuum, and we know what happens when there's a power vacuum. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Uh, just about out of time on this one. Uh, so much going on in the world, and uh, uh, always a pleasure to have your perspective on this, Elliot. Thanks so much for this today. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, a professor emeritus from uh, Carleton University, specializing in uh, internal and uh, global affairs, for that matter, since uh, you know the world is getting smaller. Politically, anyway. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.